Assalamu alaikum. This is Mutaki Ismail, host of the Islamic History Podcast. This is going to be a very short prelude before we get into the actual show. You know, it's been a long time since the last episode of this series was released, and the episode that you're about to listen to was produced several months ago. So there'll be some disconnect between what you might remember from the last episode and what you're about to hear in this episode. Or perhaps you haven't even heard the previous episode and this is your first time listening to anything within this series. If you haven't heard the previous episodes or if you've forgotten the details, I encourage you to go back and listen to them first. But if you don't want to do that or if you're willing to jump right in from this episode, that's fine also. However, to catch you up to speed, allow me to provide a brief recap of the series so far. By the beginning of the 20th century, the Ottoman Empire was well into its decline and known as the sick man of Europe. Other European powers, such as the British, the French, and the Russians, had been encroaching on Ottoman territory for decades. In 1908 and 1913, the Committee for Union and Progress, known to the world as the Young Turks, managed to take over the Ottoman government. The Young Turks were hoping to enact reforms that would halt or even reverse the empire's decline. Knowing these reforms might invite war with Britain, France, or Russia, the Young Turks decided to form an alliance with Germany just as World War I was starting to unfold. The Ottoman Sultan and most of the Ottoman people wanted to remain neutral in this war. However, Enver Pasha, the Ottoman minister of war and de facto leader of the Young Turks, thought Germany would win and pushed the empire into this war. Meanwhile, some prominent Arabs within the empire were beginning to resent the nationalist policies of the Young Turks. One of these was Sharif Hussein ibn Ali al-Hashimi, the Ottoman ruler of Mecca, who was contemplating rebelling against the Young Turks. When British War Minister Herbert Horatio Kitchener learned of this rift, he contacted Sharif Hussein and assured him of British support. Kitchener went on to promise Sharif Hussein that Great Britain would help him create an Arab caliphate if he revolted against the Ottomans. Others within the British government thought this was a foolish idea. In the early stages of the war, the Ottomans did not do very well. They lost thousands of soldiers fighting against the Russians in the Caucasus and were repelled when they attacked the British at the Suez Canal. But they did much better during the Gallipoli campaign in 1915 when the British and French attempted a naval invasion of the Dardanelles Strait. As the war dragged on in Europe and the death toll rose to alarming levels, the British grew desperate and reconsidered Kitchener's idea of an Arab caliphate. Mark Sykes, a mid-level employee in the British government, believed Kitchener's idea of an Arab caliphate just might work. Kitchener allowed Mark Sykes to create an Arab bureau to manage British interests in the Middle East. 
When Sharif Hussein learned the Young Turks were planning to remove him from office, he informed the British he was fully committed to a revolt against the Ottomans. And that's where we left off. Now that you're all caught up, sit back, stay safe, and enjoy the show. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. And in this season, which is season five of the Islamic History Podcast, we are discussing the partition of the Ottoman Empire, which began with the events of World War One and ended with uh, a lot of problems. The modern Middle East that we have right now is how it ended. But before we get into our next uh, episode, let's discuss a brief recap of the last episode. In the last episode, we talked about how British Egypt, that is the British offices in Egypt, were convinced that the Arabs could help them win this devastating war that we now call World War I. But at the time, I think they pretty much just called it the Great War. In any case, to ensure Arab support, particularly the support of Sharif Hussein, who was the emir or the governor of Mecca for the Ottoman Empire, the British had promised to give Sharif Hussein an Arab caliphate. The British, and by the British we really mean British Egypt, and by British Egypt we really mean Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener, who was the British Secretary of War. The British expected this future Arab caliphate to be a semi-autonomous state, a semi-autonomous region that they could influence and basically use as a vassal if they wanted to. Whereas Sharif Hussein, whom they were negotiating with, he expected a completely independent state. He did not want to be a vassal or a protectorate of the British. However, Sharif Hussein's expectations were conflicting with the claims of other groups, particularly the uh, British allies, the French and the Russians, and especially the French, because the French wanted coastal Syria. Not only did the French want coastal Syria, they also wanted influence over inner Syria. Now, British Egypt, who was doing most of the negotiating with Sharif Hussein, they didn't mind giving the French coastal Syria, but they didn't want the French to have influence over all of Syria. They definitely didn't want the French to have inner Syria as well. They wanted that for themselves, along with a Mediterranean port. And in addition to all that, you also had British India, who wanted Baghdad and Basra. Of course, British Egypt didn't share all of these details with Sharif Hussein. Sharif Hussein was expecting and or negotiating with the expectations that he would get most of what he considered Arabia. And finally, in the last episode, we discussed the different regions of Syria and why they were so important and why they mattered. And that's where we're going to pick up right now. When we discussed Syria's regions in the previous episode, there's one thing we left out. We left out the discussion of these major cities that were within inner Syria. Syria's inner region, once you got past that range of mountains that we discussed, there was like a line of cities going from the north straight south. It wasn't a straight line, but it was an almost straight line that ran almost parallel to the mountains, that ran almost parallel to the Mediterranean coast. 
These cities began with Aleppo in northern Syria, just south of the modern Turkish border, then on down to Hama, and then the city of Homs, and finally to Damascus, the most southern of these cities. These four cities were very important for all parties involved. The French wanted it for commercial influence, but for Sharif Hussein, he also wanted it either. That's because there was an important railroad that ran from Aleppo in the north to Damascus in the south, and that railroad passed through all four of these cities. This railroad, railroad had been built by the French in 1895 for the Ottoman Empire. So at this time, this railroad is under the authority of the Ottoman Empire. But of course, Shalif Hussein expected to take control of this region in this future independent Arab state the British were promising him. In Shalif Hussein's mind, this railroad would connect northern uh, Syria to the Hejaz because after the railroad left Damascus, it traveled on down to the Hejaz to carry Muslims and pilgrims down to the holy city of Mecca and also to Medina as well. So, this was a vital railroad, commercially important. It was militarily important. It was important in all sorts of ways. And so it is obvious that Sharif Hussein wanted this region, but the French wanted it also. And so this is where, as a matter of fact, the British wanted it too. The British just wanted to pretend to give it to Sharif Hussein where they could control it through him. But that's a that's the conflict that these three groups were dealing with regarding these inner cities uh, beyond on the eastern side of that mountain range, Jabal Nusaydiya. And so now that we have the layout of the land, let's get into the negotiations. But before we can even get into the negotiations, my bad for that one, we got to discuss Mark Sykes, who we mentioned was the British war office employee. He was also a diplomat and a bureaucrat. He was the one who felt he was an expert on the Middle East. He was returning from a long trip through Brit British Eastern territories, just kind of making like a survey of these different territories to report back to the British Home Office in London. On his way back to London, he naturally stopped in Cairo, which was British territory as well. While he was in Cairo, Mark Sykes Mark Sykes met up with Gilbert Clayton. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Gilbert Clayton was in charge of British intelligence in Cairo. And so Clayton and Sykes met in Cairo in November 1915. As we had mentioned two episodes ago, I believe in episode 12, Clayton had been convinced by the Arab spy al Faruqi that the Arabs were ready to help the British by overthrowing or revolting, rebelling against the Ottoman Empire. So when Sykes arrived in Cairo, Clayton shared this information with Sykes, and this was totally fascinating to Sykes. He just loved this idea of the Arabs joining the British in the war, which is kind of strange because up until this moment, Sykes had a pretty low opinion of most of the people in the Middle East. 
Now, he kind of had a respect, uh, a level of respect for the Turks who ruled the Ottoman Empire. They were a ruling class in the Ottoman Empire. So he kind of had a lot of respect for them. But his views towards the Arabs were downright racist. There's uh, documentation of him calling the Arabs cowardly and vicious, and he even compared the Bedouins to animals. On top of being racist towards the Arabs, he was also anti-Semitic, and he thought that there were Jewish plots and secret Jewish international intrigues all over the place. And then he also was completely disgusted by the Armenians. He was completely racist to the Armenians as well. Mark Seitz had a lot of issues. And yet, with all of these prejudices that Mark Sykes had, he was now willing to try to bring all of these different groups together as British allies. He even wrote a proposal discussing recruiting an Armenian army to attack the Ottomans. That's how taken in he was by this idea of the Arabs helping the British in the war. They are obviously Armenians and not Arabs, but in his mind, he's just thinking of any subjected group under the Ottomans would be willing to help the British overthrow the brutal Ottoman Empire. And I'm using air quotes here because that's really not their feeling. The Armenians didn't really care for the Ottomans, but the Arabs weren't hateful towards the Ottomans or the Turks at all. So Mark Sykes completely bought into Clayton's idea that the various ethnic groups of the Middle East were ready and willing to rise up against the Ottomans and could help the British win the war. And so with that idea implanted in Mark Sykes' head, Clayton now convinced him to take this idea of an Arab revolt back to London and convince the British Parliament to support it, convince the politicians in London to support this idea. And Mark Sykes promptly went on ahead and did just that. He returned to London in December 1915 and reported everything that he had learned in Cairo from Gilbert Clayton. And it is this that actually, this incident right here, this instance where Mark Sykes returns to London and discusses the uh, what he learned in Cairo, this is what led to the creation of the Arab Bureau, which we discussed in one of the previous episodes. So now, once Mark Sykes reports this information, many London politicians were also excited by this idea. I take it that people were just bogged down by this war by now. It's going on two years. It's in a stalemate. Hundreds of, maybe, I'm not sure if hundreds of thousands of people are dying, but thousands upon thousands of people are dying. No one seems, seems to be gaining anything. And I think the London politicians were just grasping at any kind of straw to try to give them an advantage over the Germans in this war. And so when Mark Sykes brought this idea to them, a lot of people were just willing to just jump on it and, and ride this idea to its very end. And so this made Mark Sykes a very popular person in London's political circles. He wound up speaking before the British cabinet. He spoke before parliament. He met with King George. He was a bit of a celebrity politician for, for a little bit here. However, there were some British politicians who didn't really like this idea, and they didn't really want to 
be committed to promising the Arabs anything. For one, many of them doubted that the Arabs would be of any help because up until this time, the British hadn't really had any direct conflict with the Arabs. They, had, they hadn't seen what the Arabs could do militarily, so they weren't convinced the Arabs could really even do anything. And on top of that, the Arabs that were fighting right now were fighting for the Ottomans and were currently killing hundreds of British soldiers in Gallipoli. Ultimately, however, those British politicians who opposed making too many promises to the Arabs ultimately were okay with making those promises to the Arabs. From their perspective, they didn't think the Arabs would actually do anything anyway. They doubted the Arabs' ability to revolt against the Turks. So from their perspective, they didn't mind making promises to the Arabs that they wouldn't that they couldn't keep because they didn't expect to have to keep them. So they could promise the world knowing or at least believing that they would never actually be called to account for them. The primary politician who was okay with making a bunch of promises to the Arabs was none other than, of course, Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener. Even before Mark Sykes returned to London, even before Mark Sykes had even arrived in Cairo, Kitchener had already authorized Sir Henry McMahon, who was the British High Commissioner to Egypt, kind of like the governor of Egypt. He had already authorized Sir Henry McMahon to make whatever pledges and promises were necessary to Sharif Hussein. This is in October 1915. And remember, the Arab Caliphate was his idea to begin with, so he was completely behind and for making any sort of a promises he needed to make to the Arabs, particularly Sharif Hussein. Kitchener gave Sir Henry McMahon permission to make promises to Sharif Hussein in October 1915. However, Henry McMahon had already been in correspondence with Sharif Hussein since July 1915. It was just that he hadn't made any promises up until then. He kept his his discussions very, very vague. So these letters, a series of 10 letters between McMahon and Hussein, these became known as the McMahon-Hussein letters. In these letters that were going back and forth between Henry McMahon and Sharif Hussein, in these letters, Hussein had made it clear, he made it clear that he wanted an agreement on the boundaries of this future Arab state. Hussein demanded clear acknowledgement of what these uh, boundaries would be for his future state. Hussein had warned uh, McMahon that his people, by the people he meant the Arabs, demanded specifics about which sorts of lands they would control. However, when Hussein mentioned his people, the British took this to mean the secret Arab societies, because the British were under this, once again, the British were under this illusion that there was a whole bunch of secret Arab societies pulling the strings within the Ottoman Empire. However, even though Kitchener had given McMahon permission to make all the promises he needed, McMahon was actually very reluctant to be specific about any sort of future Arab state. He deliberately kept his language vague. So when he corresponded with Sharif Hussein, he said certain things such as he agreed that Britain would recognize a future independent Arab state. That's a very 
vague promise. <laughs> exactly when would Britain recognize this future independent Arab state? What were the boundaries and the borders of this future independent Arab state? So you can see how vague it is. He simply acknowledged that British would recognize a future independent Arab state. However, he shied away from discussing definite boundaries. The thing is that McMahon was an experienced negotiator. He was an experienced diplomat. He didn't want his name attached to any definite commitments because then he would have to be responsible for them. He would have to answer to them in case these commitments led to problems in the future. However, his reluctance to put his name on any definite commitment still led to many problems in the future. So during these negotiations, or really these letters and correspondence between uh, McMahon and Hussein, he also told, made it clear to Sharif Hussein that this future independent Arab state would require European advisors to help set up its administration. And in these discussions, McMahon made it very clear that these future advisors, these future European advisors to this future independent Arab state had to be British. And so this insistence by McMahon on having British advisors in this future independent Arab state, this made it clear, or at least in McMahon's mind, made it clear that he intended to turn this future independent Arab state into a vassal of British Egypt. In their correspondence, Henry McMahon told Sharif Hussein that the French had claims on the area west of Damascus. And from McMahon's point of view, at least what he said later on, McMahon said that this included Palestine. And this was a point of contention between the Arabs and the Jews later on. The thing is that Palestine is not exactly west of Damascus. It is west of Damascus, but it's like 120 miles southwest. So from the Arabs' perspective, west of Damascus meant directly west of Damascus, which is mostly Lebanon, not Palestine, which was especially Jerusalem, which was 120 miles southwest, way southwest of Damascus. So the Arabs say that when McMahon made it clear that the French wanted the regions west of Damascus. Arabs say that he did not include Palestine in this, in this region, whereas the Jews say that he did include Palestine in this region. You can kind of already see where this is going in the future, but we're not quite there yet. Henry McMahon made it clear to Sharif Hussein that he could only promise those parts of Syria that France was willing to relinquish. But what was left unsaid was that France was not willing to relinquish any parts of Syria. While France only really knew they could while France knew they could only really control the coastal parts of Syria, they had every intention to control the inner parts of Syria through local puppets. But McMahon made sure to leave all of this out in his correspondence with Sharif Hussein. So still in their discussions, in this back and forth between Hussein and McMahon, 
Hossein softened his positions a little bit. He was willing to give up some of his claims in the northernmost part of Syria near the modern-day border of Turkey. He was willing to give that part up, give up any claims he had in this region. But he refused to give up his claim to the rest of the Syrian coast. He just he would not do that. And as we mentioned before, the Arabs in this region and Sharif Hussein among them just didn't trust the French. So this region that Hussein refused to relinquish and refused to give up his claims to, this included Palestine and Lebanon. So you can already see the conflict is is brewing in the future for something. There's something in the future brewing here. So they move. They discussed that part for a little bit, left it undecided. They moved on to other parts of the Arabian Peninsula. McMahon then told Hussein that a British presence was going to have to remain in the Iraqi provinces. This is primarily Basra and Baghdad. And that's because, as we mentioned before, the um, British India had claims on this region. They wanted to control this part of the Arabian Peninsula. However, McMahon simply mentioned that there had to be a British presence there. He didn't say that British India wanted to control it. He said there had to be a British presence in this region because of British interest that was still there. He did not specify how long this presence was going to be. He didn't say how strong this presence was going to be. He just, once again, speaking in vague diplomatic language, said there will have to be a British presence there. And at first, Hussein was willing to let this go, and he was willing to exchange this British presence uh, for monetary tribute, basically saying, yeah, you can keep your soldiers there, but you're going to have to pay me some money for it. But as the discussions went on, Hussein backed away even further. He just pretty much said that we'll just discuss this once the war is over. We can talk about the details of Iraq later on. And then they got to discussing the Arabian Peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula that is, that is the actual Hejaz, the region south of Iraq and Syria. McMahon was also not willing to promise any of this to Sharif Hussein either. See, at this point of time, much of Arabia, the desert part of Arabia, that is below Iraq, was now um, Yamama, Bahrain, Kuwait, on down to Oman, and all this all this region was now make, makes up most of um, the Arabia, most of Saudi Arabia and that immediate region. This region was divided between a whole, a whole bunch of several rival groups, different, um, for lack of a better word, tri- tribal Arab factions. It was divided up a, a bunch of them, and one of these was Abdulaziz ibn Saud, the head of the Saudi family. And as we mentioned before, ibn Saud was a blood rival, direct rival, arch rival, however you want to put it, to Sharif Hussein based in Mecca. So the British had agreements with a lot of these different groups, agreements and alliances, including an alliance with Ibn Saud. And so when they got to discussing, when Sharif Hussein and Henry McMahon got to discussing the future of the Arabian Peninsula, McMahon once again waffled on that and told Hussein that because the British has so many different um, alliances in this region, they couldn't promise anything that would ruin their current relationship with these groups. So in all of this, McMahon effectively managed to commit Britain to anything. And Hussein still went along with it. Hussein 
didn't get Syria because McMahon refused to uh, commit to that. Hussein didn't get Iraq because McMahon insisted there had to be a British presence on there, though he was very unclear about how long and how strong that British presence would be. And Hussein didn't even get the Arabian Peninsula, all this desert area that nobody really seemed to care for because Britain had a bunch of um, alliances and allegiances with the different Arab tribes that control this region. So they, he didn't even want to commit to that. So Hussein got no commitments from McMahon whatsoever, at least no written commitments. He thought, and this is the thing, McMahon out-diplomated him, I guess I don't know how you put it. McMahon made Hussein think that he was agreeing to all his stuff, to all of his demands. But at the end of the day, McMahon made sure not to make anything clear and used very vague language. But in a way, you could say that Hussein was also pulling his own little tricks on McMahon as well, because Hussein didn't really have much to offer the British. I mean, let's put aside the fact that Hussein is about is about to commit treason against against a Muslim country against his uh, Muslim bosses, but we'll leave that alone alone for right now. Hussein Sharif Hussein didn't control an army. His influence over the Arabs was very limited. The as we discussed in a previous episode, the Arab nationalists didn't think he was nationalistic enough. And so most of and even most of these Arab nationalists who belonged to these secret Arab societies, they had been broken up by the Young Turks. We mentioned the Young Turks found out about their plotting, broke a lot of them up, and sent a lot of these guys to the front lines in Gallipoli to fight the British. And on top of that, Sharif Hussein's time was limited because the Young Turks planned to get rid of him as soon as the war was over. So you could say that Sharif Hussein, even though he wasn't getting any firm commitments from the British, you know, he wasn't really offering the British much either, except for promises himself. So I guess they're both kind of duping each other. So we'll have to wrap it up for now. We will continue these secret negotiations that ultimately became known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement. We'll have to continue that in the next episode, inshallah. The Sykes-Picot Agreement, in case you're not familiar with it, this is the infamous agreement between Britain and France and Russia to a certain extent to control the Middle East. And the British and the French made this secret agreement while at the same time promising the Arabs, particularly Sharif Hussein, independence if they rebelled against the Ottomans. We'll get into the details of that agreement in the next episode, inshallah. Uh, for now, stay tuned for a short clip from our series on Salahuddin al-Ayubi, and we will continue the story next time, inshallah. But until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. So Al-Isra is the night travel, Al-Mi'raj is the ascension, but he ascended to heaven from Jerusalem. And so that is the religious significance to Muslims. Historically, it's more or less historically important because it was uh, peacefully conquered by Umar ibn al-Khattab, and it has been in Muslim hands probably longer than any other single religious group. And you might be surprised to hear that, but yes, it actually has been in Muslim hands longer than any single religious group. Now, as far as the different political groups, there are many different political groups who have had 
uh, the city of Jerusalem. But as far as religious groups, Muslims have held on to Jerusalem longer than any other. So let's do some quick math so you can understand what I mean. If we take the biblical account of David's uh, conquest of Jerusalem at face value, then it was under a an Israelite monarchy or government for about 400 years, from the time that Prophet Dawood conquered Jerusalem, made it his capital, up until Jerusalem was conquered and leveled and destroyed by the Babylonians. That was roughly about 400 years. From that point in time, it switched through a lot of different, mostly pagan hands between the Babylonians and then the Greeks and then the, the early Romans. So it didn't really come into Christian hands until Constantine became Christian, which was around 312 CE. So if we're going, even though Constantine didn't make Christianity the state religion, we'll still give this to the Christian to say that it, it came under Christian rule in 312 AD when Constantine was the emperor. And it was under Christian rule from 312 until the conquest, until it was conquered by Omar ibn al-Khattab in roughly 636-637 CE. So that's a little bit more than 300 years. So it was under a Jewish state, or Israelite state is probably better to say, because they weren't really called Jews then, so they were more or less called Israelites. So Israelite state for about 400 years, then under various different pagan states, then under a Christian state for about uh, 300 years, uh, maybe about 300 30 years or so. So from the time of 636, when Omar ibn Khattab conquered Jerusalem, up until the advent of the Crusaders, Jerusalem was under various different Muslim hands, but still under and under the control of Muslims. So from 636 up until about 1099, that is a little, that is a little bit more than 450 years. So for about 450 years, it was under Muslim hands. Then it was conquered by the Crusaders for about eh, less than a century, less than 100 years. And then from that point on, it was on, under Muslim hands all the way up until World War One, which was in the 1900s, roughly a thousand, roughly um, almost a thousand years. Yeah. So that's 900 years. So 900 years. Let's do this again. 400 years from Omar to the Crusades, and then about 900 years from the from Salahuddin al-Ayyubi when he eventually recaptures Jerusalem up until World War One, when Jerusalem became under British hands. That's roughly 900 years, almost a thousand years. So Muslims have had Jerusalem. Have, there's been Muslim rulers over Jerusalem longer than any group of people. So even though one can say that the Israelites were there first, even though they weren't there first, they captured it from someone else also. Muslims have had it the longest.